Heavenly Father, we thank you for this beautiful day. We thank you that you have given us seven Sundays in a row with no rain. That even though it's been a little hot some of these Sundays, uh, that, that we haven't had rain and we've been able to have a, a service. We thank you that we've been able to worship together for the past couple of months, uh, albeit in a different environment, uh, but, but a good environment. And we thank you that your word never changes. You never change. We can still come before you with our praise and our thanks and our worship and, and learning from you, from your word. So, Lord, I, I pray that you would bless our time this morning as well, uh, that we would be one with you as we commune with you in praise and worship, and that all the glory would be given to you. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In Psalm 113, we read, Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forever. From the, setting of the, from the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. The Lord is high above all nations. His glory is above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God? who is enthroned on high, who humbles himself to behold the things that are in heaven and in the earth. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. He makes the barren woman abide in the house as a joyful mother of children. Praise the Lord. And that's what I want to direct our attention to as we start things off. You should have in your bulletin a, a song lyric sheet if you want to go ahead and pull that out. Now, even as we continue to go through uh, this trying time and other states in our country are seeing surges with this virus and uh, we're, we're seeing an, a little bit of an increase in transmission rate in our state here. Uh, we know, as we, re as we read from that psalm, who is like the Lord? Who can be compared to him? That he is enthroned on his throne on high, and yet he wants to know what's going on in our world right now. He wants to know what we're going through. He wants to know what we're dealing with because he loves us. He cares about us. And not only does he love and care about us, but he has the power to make things happen. He has a perfect will, and nothing is going to thwart that will. And so no matter what difficulties we go through in this life, as Job declared uh, in the very first chapter of the book of Job in the Old Testament, after he lost everything in one day, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away, but still I will bless the name of the Lord. be your name in the land that is plentiful where streams of abundance flow blessed be your name blessed be your name when found in the desert place though I walk through the wilderness blessed be your name every blessing you pour out in, Lord, still I will say, blessed be the name of the Lord, blessed be your name, blessed be the name of the Lord, blessed be your glorious name. Blessed be your name, when the sun's shining down on me, when the world's all as it should be. Blessed be your name. Blessed be your name. The road marked with suffering. Though there's pain in the offering. Blessed be your name. Every blessing you pour out, I'll turn back to praise. In 
And when the darkness closes in, Lord, still I will say, Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be your name. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be your glorious name. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be your name. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be your glorious name. You give and take away. You give and take away. My heart will choose to say, Lord, blessed be your name. You give and take away. You give and take away. My heart will choose to say, Lord, blessed be your name. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be your name. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be your glorious name. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be your name. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be your glorious name. As we talked about in our VBS this past week, God took ordinary people, ones that didn't really have anything special about them in and of themselves, except for Jesus, obviously, uh, and gave them a job to do and gave them the strength to do extraordinary things. As we'll talk about in our message in a, in a few minutes, God used a man named Gideon uh, who didn't think of himself as very special, and in fact was so crippled by fear, uh, he did everything he could out of fear. That's how he lived his life. He lived his life out of fear. And especially as we continue to go through this pandemic and continue to deal with different restrictions, there are a lot of people in this world and in this country right now who are filled with fear. That's how they live their lives. They live their lives dictated by fear. But as believers in Jesus, that is not what we've been given. That is not the gift we have been given. Paul writes to Pastor Timothy, you have not been given a spirit of fear, but a spirit of boldness and strength and of a sound mind. One that can think through things clearly and not just run around like the sky is falling. That is what we've been given as believers in Jesus, that tremendous gift that we do not need to live our lives fueled by fear. And this is why we know that our Heavenly Father, as we read in that psalm earlier, reigns over this entire world and nothing happens without him knowing about it. And nothing happens that goes contrary to his perfect will and plan. Yes, there are a lot of heartbreaking and difficult things that we will go through in this life. But that too is a part of his plan. And there is a reason and a purpose for everything that we go through. That gives meaning to everything that we go through. The joyful and the happy and the lighthearted times and the dark, depressing, difficult times. God never changes, God is still in control, and his love never changes, and his authority never changes. And so even though we may look around us at this world and this country and even at our personal lives and say, it, it doesn't look like God's doing a whole lot, we know that God is giving us the strength and the boldness to do what he has called us to do. So just as he gave the boldness to Gideon to go do the impossible, just as he gave the boldness to Daniel to stand up for what he knew was right and to still pray to his God, even though he knew what awaited him if he, if he did that. 
to be like Samuel and as a boy be given a message from Almighty God and be expected to tell that to the high priest when the very message was about that high priest's destruction. That's, that, that's boldness. That's courage in the face of insecurity. When God gave David boldness as a boy once again to go up against a nine-foot-tall man who was fully armored and all he had was a slingshot, but he, all these people went with the strength and the boldness and the confidence of God. I'm not a warrior. I'm too afraid to lose. I feel unqualified for what you're calling me to. Lord, with your strength, I've got no excuse. It's broken people up, exactly who you use. So give me faith like Daniel in the lion's den. Give me hope like Moses in the wilderness. Give me a heart like David, Lord, be my defense. So I can face my giants with confidence. Took a shepherd boy and made him a king. So I'm gonna trust you and give you everything. I'll be a conqueror, cause you fight for me. I'll be a champion, claiming your victory. So give me faith like Daniel in the lion's den. Give me hope like Moses in the wilderness. Give me a heart like David, Lord, be my defense, so I can face my giants with confidence. I'm going to sing and shout and shake the walls, won't stop until I see them fall. going to stand up, step out when you come. Jesus, Jesus, I'm going to sing and shout and shake the walls, won't stop until I see them fall. going to stand up, step out when you come. Jesus. So give me faith like Daniel in the lion's den. Give me hope like Moses in the wilderness. Give me a heart like David, Lord, be my defense. So I can face my giants with confidence. Yeah, give me faith like Daniel in the lion's den. Give me hope like Moses in the wilderness. Give me a heart like David, Lord, be my defense. So I can face my giants with confidence. I'll face my giants with confidence. Again, as we continue to go through this trying time as a nation, as a community, and as a church, it might be difficult to see what God is doing. It might be difficult to see His purposes in everything, especially as people are, are dying, and especially as people are losing sources of income, and losing stability, and losing security. But rest assured, even when it doesn't look like it, God is still working. God is still moving. God is still working behind the scenes. He is the way maker. He is the miracle worker. He is the promise keeper. We can always trust in him. The Bible says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. You are here, 
working in this place. I worship you. I worship you. You are waymaker, miracle worker, promise keeper, light in the darkness. My God, that is who you are. You are waymaker, miracle worker, promise keeper, light in the darkness. My God, that is who you are. You are here, touching every heart. I worship you, I worship you. You are here, healing every heart. I worship you, I worship you. You are here, turning lives around. I worship you. in every heart. I worship you. Yeah, I worship you, Lord. You are waymaker, miracle worker, promise keeper, light in the darkness. My God, that is who you are. You are waymaker, miracle worker, promise keeper, light in the darkness. My God, that is who you are. That is who you you're working, even when I don't feel it, you're working, you never stop, you never stop working, you never stop, you never stop working, yeah, yeah, you are way maker, miracle worker, promise keeper, light in the darkness, my God, that is who you are, you are Waymaker, miracle worker, promise keeper, light in the darkness, my God, that is who you are, that is who you are, that is who you are. Father, once again, we thank you for this beautiful day. Thank you for this beautiful piece of property you've given us so that we can do these services, even in the midst of these restrictions. We thank you for also giving us our church building uh, over on uh, 3rd and Cromwell, where we can resume our indoor services, albeit with social distancing, next Sunday. We pray that those who have been unable to be with us during our outdoor drive-in services uh, because of the heat or for whatever reason that they'll be able to join us when we move back indoors. Well, Lord, we thank you for sustaining us through all of this. We thank you for providing for us through your people. We thank you for taking care of us. You have truly proven yourself faithful. And Lord, I especially pray for those in our congregation who have lost loved ones during this time, that you would give them a special and strong confidence in you, a special and strong comfort, that you would give them the peace that surpasses all human understanding, and that you would guard their hearts and minds in Christ Jesus, that they would be able to find their hope and peace in you.
I pray for all those who have suffered other kinds of losses, loss of income, loss of stability, loss of security. Lord, I pray that you would be with them too and provide for their needs. We thank you for your word, that it is always timeless, it is always true, no matter what the situation we're facing is, no matter what time period we're in, no matter what culture we're living in. It always speaks to us, it always gives us the truth, even if it's the cold, hard truth, what we need to hear, what we need to take and put in our lives and have it change our lives. So Lord, I pray that your spirit would go forth today and the words that are spoken would not just remain in our ears or, or go in one ear and out the other even, but they would work our, its way down into our hearts and bear real fruit in our lives and change our lives. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. According to History.com, on October 13, 1972, a chartered plane that was taking a rugby team from Uruguay to an upcoming match, along with their friends and acquaintances, crashed into a peak in the Andes range of Argentina, South America. From the initial crash resulting injuries and, and the crippling cold, 18 of the 45 passengers perished immediately or shortly thereafter. The rest of the survivors tried to last as long as possible on a very dwindling food supply and making a shelter out of the plane's remaining fuselage. These survivors had already lasted 16 days on the side of the mountain when an avalanche struck and killed an additional eight people. There were now 19 people left to try to survive on the side of this mountain. Meanwhile, search parties from three different countries that uh, had called off their search uh, process after only about a week because they believed the situation to be so dire that no one could possibly have survived that. So they called off their search only after only a little more than a week. Uh, by December, 16 people from the flight were still alive with no one looking for them and no end in sight to their nightmare. Two of these survivors left the rest of their group behind and embarked on a 12-day trek to seek help in, in, in neighboring Chile. Because of these two people's bravery and tenacious determination, the remaining 14 survivors were finally rescued after spending two and a half months on the side of that mountain. The situation those Uruguayan flight passengers found themselves in was truly an impossible situation. Even the search parties from three different surrounding countries had given up. No one was thought to still be alive. But an impossible rescue was pulled off by those two men for the rest of those 14 remaining people. As everyone knows, again, I've, I've mentioned this uh, more than once, we had our 2020 Vacation Bible School this past week. And I'm proud of everyone involved for making this uh, happen in the middle of a still ongoing pandemic and an adherence to current state restrictions, still making it happen. I'm glad we were still able to minister to our church and community in whatever way we were able to, to serve 11 kids throughout the week, and they all heard about what God can do in their lives through Jesus Christ. Thank you to all the kids' parents and the older siblings and guardians who attended with them so these kids could participate this year. And as you know, the theme from this past week was character construction zone. We had all sorts of decorations that were construction themed. And the ladies from the Women's Ministry Committee did a fantastic job of decorating with those and, and organizing each evening's pre-packed bags, leading each evening's craft, and ensuring that everything ran smoothly throughout the week. This week certainly could not have happened and would not have happened if not for all their hard work and, and, and Mr. Jackson's. He did a great job of leading us in songs and lessons where God used the character of different people in his word and the history of Israel and of the entire world to rescue others or to rescue themselves 
from absolutely impossible situations. These people included men named Gideon, Daniel, Samuel, David, and most importantly, Jesus. I wanted to connect the beginning of this morning's message to one of these people that, that Don taught on, and that man is Gideon in the Old Testament. I want to start with how God grew his character and changed his great fear into great faith and used him to rescue Israel from an absolutely impossible situation. But unlike most people who are rescued from an impossible situation and are barely hanging on by the point of their rescue, we'll see how God not only rescues his people here, but made them overwhelmingly victorious in that rescue. In the same way, we'll see how even and especially today, God not only rescues us from an absolutely impossible situation, but also makes us overwhelmingly victorious in that absolutely impossible situation at the same time. So the account of Gideon is found in the Old Testament in the book of Judges from, from chapters 6 uh, through 8. So if you want to find out more about what happened with this man, since we're only going to be focusing on a very small portion of the story today, you can go back and read that in Judges chapters 6 through 8. In fact, if you brought your Bible with you today, please turn to that book. Uh, it's in the Old Testament. It goes Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges. So you can go in that order and find it, or just look it up in your table of contents, or ask a neighbor. There's no shame in that. Or... If you didn't bring your Bible with you, I'm sure you brought a smartphone with you. Go to the, your app store, download the free Bible app from life.church. Uh, and also, it's all free, and there's reading plans on there and everything. It's pretty cool. Uh, search for Judges uh, chapter uh, 6, and we're going to be in Judges 6 through 8. Uh, and so we can all see this together. So you can generally understand this in world history at this point when Gideon shows up. I just want to place this real quickly in what's happened in the world up to this point. God created the first two humans, Adam and Eve, right? And from, that from them, the entire rest of the world's population, and even us today, came from those two people. God eventually destroys the world with a flood, save one family, because evil had grown too horrific and too devastating to the, to the, to the world. From that family's descendants, people spread out across the world. And all the nations of the ancient world would come from them. These range from Egypt to Mesopotamia to the people living in the land of Canaan. Sometime later, God calls forth a thoroughly pagan man named Abraham from Mesopotamia to faith in him and promises that his descendants would inherit the land of Canaan. Through a series of divinely orchestrated events, the people of Israel end up just outside of Egypt. But because they like it too much there and are reluctant to return to Canaan, you know, the land that God had promised to them, God allows for them to be enslaved by the Egyptians. Hundreds of years later, God calls a man named Moses to free them from Egyptian slavery and lead Israel back to Canaan. Moses eventually does, but it's not until his successor, Joshua, that Israel takes Canaan for themselves. Here was the problem, though. Even though God commanded Israel to destroy all the people groups already living in Canaan, they didn't follow through that, follow through with that completely. They didn't, the, the point of that was so that the surrounding pagan people groups didn't pollute the Israelites' faith in God. But the Israelites only followed that partially and left several people groups to survive. And that would prove to be the bane of Israel's existence after not too much longer from that point. After Joshua's death, there was no strong leader to keep Israel following God. And scripture tells us that the Israelites lived a lifestyle mantra of... The meaning of what's right and what's wrong is what I define it to be. Sounds pretty familiar to today, doesn't it? 
The meaning and definition of what's right and what's wrong is what I define it to be. So because humans are human, Israel devolved into worshiping idols and the false gods of the Canaanite people groups. Exactly what God did not want them to do. To shake up his people and to get them to get back on the right track, God allowed these different people groups in Canaan that Israel had left to survive to turn around and oppress Israel. In a couple of ways, Israel brought these judgments upon themselves. Understandably, these oppressions would shake up the Israelites and turn their focus and faith back towards God and make them cry out to him to rescue them from these oppressions. God then, in his mercy and love towards them, had never abandoned them, never left them, and he would send different people, both men and women, to raise up armies in Israel and defeat the oppressive armies and deliver Israel from these different oppressions. These deliverers would then remain leaders over Israel and judge different civil cases in the land. Because of this, these deliverers would be called Judges, that's where the name comes from. So all the stories of these deliverances by these judges can be found in the Old Testament book known as Judges. So as with all the other oppressive situations Israel found themselves in because of their rebellion against God, by the time we get to Judges chapter 6, the flavor of the month of oppressive Canaanite people group is this time around is the Midianites. One interesting tidbit between the Israelites and the Midianites is that they both had the same forefather. As noted by one biblical scholar, both the Israelites and the Midianites had Abraham as their forefather. The Israelites, of course, descended from Abraham and Sarah's wife Isaac. And Sarah, Abraham and Sarah's son, rather, sorry, Isaac. While the Midianites descended from Abraham and the wife he married following Sarah's death, a woman named Keturah. The Midianites ended up being a nomadic people group that lived near the Gulf of Aquaba, the body of water that most likely is the same body of water that is known in Scripture as the Red Sea, which God parted for Israel to pass through on their escape from Egyptian slavery in the days of Moses. In fact, Moses' wife, Zipporah, and all of her family, all of Moses' in-laws, guess what? We're Midianites. So there's a lot of family connection here. I went through all of this to point out that, at least in this case of national oppression, the Midianites and Israelites actually had a lot of past connections, especially familial and generational. But because the Israelites had driven them out of the land that they had previously roamed as nomads, there's now this animosity between them. And as Judges 6 describes, because Israel had not destroyed them, they went elsewhere, regrouped, and grew to an incredibly strong size of people, and came back to now oppress Israel. And so, in connection with Israel's disobedience, the Midianites have become buddy-buddy with other people groups, and together they've created a lot of disruption and horrible conditions for the people of Israel. We know what disrupted life looks like right now, doesn't it? But don't we? During the, these past four months, with the loss of income and the loss of stability, and even heartbreakingly, loss of life. For the Israelites, what the Midianites were doing to disrupt their lives was every time Israel planted crops or tried to raise any kind of livestock, they would come and burn all the crops and kill all their livestock. So essentially what the Midianites were doing to Israel is that even though they didn't outright attack them or enslave them, they were completely crippling Israel's economy. Crops and livestock were Israel's only source of income and having any kind of economy. Without either one of these things, Israel had no sustenance, they had no income, they had no economy, they had no livelihood, and they were essentially rendered powerless. They were crippled. They were debilitated. So then the Midianites and everyone else in the area could do whatever they wanted to, to Israel and to their land and the nation as a whole. 
The Israelites then cried out to God, understandably so, for deliverance from this oppressively horrible situation. And because of his mercy and because of his love, God answered their prayers. But his answer came in the way of a very different and unexpected person, a man named Gideon. Like I, like I said previously, Gideon was a very fearful man. Very fearful man. And he had zero confidence in himself. Think of a person that you know who has zero confidence in themselves. That was how Gideon was. Zero confidence. He was also a man of weak faith at the beginning. In fact, after an angelic visitor told Gideon that he was being called by God to deliver his nation from this oppression, Gideon insisted on testing God over and over and over again to make sure that he could trust that God knew what God was doing. Finally, though, Gideon was in a spiritual place to trust God enough to raise up an army from Israel to fight against the Midianites. According to, to Judges 7, the number of men Gideon was able to muster up was 32,000 men. Now that seems like a decently sized army back in this time period, doesn't it? 32,000 men, that's, that's nothing to sneeze at. How hard could it be to defeat the Midianites at that point? Well, here, here was the problem. According to Judges 8, you want to take a guess at how many men the Midianites had? Israel had 32,000 men. The Midianites had 135,000 men. Already, this was an absolutely impossible situation. 32,000 men going up against 135,000 men. That's about 15,000 over four times the number of soldiers Israel had. That in and of itself was an impossible rescue. There was absolutely no way that fight was going to be victorious for Israel. There's no way. And then God made it even more and more impossible for Israel to win. God said, just wait, I'm about to make it even more impossible for you. God forced Gideon to whittle down his army from 32,000 men against 135,000 down to 10,000 against 135,000. And then finally, while the Midianites still had 135,000 well-armed soldiers, guess how many Israel ended up with after God whittled it down? 300. That was it. I'm not talking thousands even. I'm talking hundreds. 300 men up against 135,000. Talk about an absolutely impossible rescue. An impossible situation. There was a reason for this. God wanted Israel to see how drastically impossible their situation was. God wanted Israel to see how extremely impossible their rescue was going to be. There was just no way, and so exaggeratingly so, no way that Israel was going to be able to save themselves. No way, period. This wasn't just somebody being a pessimist and telling Gideon, dude, there's no way you're going to win. There was seriously, in complete reality, no way Israel was going to be able to save themselves. That was the whole point to this. But because God and only God was clearing a path for victory, there was a chance for Israel. That was the only reason why, because God was the one who was clearing a path for them. But please turn to Judges chapter 7, verses 7 through 9 in the Old Testament of your Bible. We pick up in Judges chapter 7, verses 7 through 9, and we read, The Lord said to Gideon, I will deliver you with the 300 men who lapped, that was one of the tests, and will give the Midianites into your hands, so let all the other people go, each man to his home. So the 300 men took the people's provisions and their trumpets into their hands, and Gideon sent all the other men of Israel, each to his tent, but retained the 300 men, and the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. Now the same night it came about that the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hands. 
The important thing I want you to notice here in these few verses is what is at the beginning of verse 7. God says to Gideon, I will deliver you with the 300 men. That was it. That was the secret. That's what was going to happen. There was absolutely no other way Israel was going to be rescued. Every other possibility was utterly impossible. So here was the plan. Firstly, God gave the Midianites the dream that they would be overwhelmingly defeated by Israel. So they were already fearful and assuming the worst. Then Israel's 300 men, they weren't even to draw swords. That's not even what they were supposed to do. They weren't even to draw swords. But what they were supposed to do was to form a perimeter around the Midianite camp with torches hidden under clay pots. And when Gideon gave the signal, those 300 men surrounding the Midianite camp smashed the clay pots, blew trumpets, and shouted, started shouting at the top of their lungs while holding these torches in midair. As it was in the middle of the night, the Midianites believed they were surrounded by hundreds of thousands of Israelite soldiers and started fleeing away. And because they were so thrown off, they were even killing each other. And so not only did God Israel, rescue Israel from Midian, but he also gave them an overwhelming victory against Midian. We read in Judges 8 that at the initial attack and the sub subsequent chasing and other Israelites rising up against uh, the fleeing Midianite soldiers, 120,000 of the original 135,000 were killed. Only 15,000 remained, and those were then routed by Gideon and his 300 men soon after. So in two separate attacks, pretty much all 135,000 Midianite soldiers ended up being killed. God took an absolutely impossible situation his people were in, and because he stepped in when they had no hope, God not only gave his people salvation from oppression, but also gave them overwhelming victory over their enemy at the exact same time. And guess what? He's never stopped doing that. He's just elaborated on that and extended it to the entire world. You see, we as a human race were in an absolutely impossible situation at the hands of our enemy, Satan, and, and of our greatest enemy, death. We were 100% incapable of saving ourselves, just like with the Israelites against Midian. Our only hope of rescue was, again, for God to come up with the plan and to make it become a reality. You see, just like with Israel and our story from the book of Judges this morning, our rebellion against God has caused an eternal rebuke against us. You might say, when did I ever rebel against God? I don't remember outright doing that. I never shook my fist, my fist at God and said, I'm rebelling against you. I don't remember ever doing that. But here's the truth of the matter. We've all sinned, and we can't help it because we were born into it. And we can thank our first ancestors, Adam and Eve, for that. But even though we've all been born into sin, we all knowingly and consciously make decisions each day that are selfish and sinful. And because of that, we have all rebelled against God's standard of holiness for us. There's no getting around it. We have no right to argue against that because it's not up to us. We are the creation. God is the creator, and he's the creator of the universe. And since he's the creator of the universe, he's the creator of the standard of what's right. Since he's the perfection, and especially the perfection of moral goodness, his standard of moral goodness is merely a, a reflection of who he is. We were created to strive for that same moral goodness, but chose instead to strive for whatever we thought was right according to what we think, and humanity has never changed from that. The world continues to be that way. The world continues in that mindset, and it's lasted for thousands of years, and it's never going to change. Scripture tells us that the payment for our sin is death. That's the cold, hard truth. There are two types of death that exist. 
both are connected to our human rebellion against God's standard. The first one is physical death. Because we wanted to hold on to our lives by living them the way we wanted to live them, the first payment for that is losing that life. But that physical death is only a doorway. It's always a doorway. Physical death, no matter what, no matter who the person is, is always a doorway. It's always a doorway, but it's a doorway to either one of two places. What we deserve for our sin in God's perfect justice is what is called the second death. That's the second death. We can't argue against it, and our opinion of that as what's fair or not is once again not up to us. We only stand condemned before the judge. We're helpless. It's an impossible situation. That second death is what's described in Scripture as a place of banishment from God's presence where there will be eternal weeping and gnashing of teeth. The term gnashing of teeth is a term meant to describe physical torment. The term weeping is meant to describe emotional torment. And two of these statements are referenced by Jesus himself, which is especially poignant. Anyone who claims that Jesus is too loving to send anyone to this place has actually not read the Bible. God's perfect justice preserves that that is what we all deserve and are headed for after physical death. And we should be grateful that he has a perfect standard of justice or no evil would go punished. I think all of us here or watching online would agree that evil must be punished or else there is no justice in the, in the world. Think of all the evil that humans have done to each other over the past thousands of years and tell me that that should not go unpunished. So who's then to decide whether evil should be punished or not, if not for someone who has a perfect understanding of what a perfect standard must be in deciding that. See, if we really stopped and thought about it, we can't have it both ways. We can't desire evil to not go unpunished and then desire for our sin to go unpunished. We can't have it both ways. It doesn't work that way. Any other way of thinking about this is deluding ourselves and trying to paint ourselves as not that bad. But then again, anyone could do that. Even the most evil person in the world could do that. So there must be one standard for judging evil and good. And there thankfully is just one standard. And that's God's standard. God is very clear about this standard. He says in the New Testament book of Romans that every single person who has ever existed has sinned and has broken that standard and therefore has fallen short of that standard. So again, what's the sentence for breaking that standard which we've all done? Death. Both physical death and the second death. That is our absolutely impossible situation. What makes it even more impossible is that just like how Gideon had only 300 men going up against 135,000, it's absolutely impossible for us to rescue and save ourselves. It's just not happening. No matter how attractive this world's belief of if you're good enough, you'll go to heaven. If you don't kill anybody, you'll go to heaven. No matter how attractive that belief is, it's simply not true. If you've already broken God's standard of moral goodness the very first time you sinned, you've already fallen short of that. And we've all broken that standard the very first time we sinned, so we've all fallen short of it. No amount of goodness is going to undo that or erase that. And even if you remove the fact that the very first time you sinned, you were obviously a little kid, I am 100% certain that we've all sinned as a full, well-knowing teenager or an adult of what's right and what's wrong. You can't make up for it. 
you've already sentenced yourself, and we've all done that, even the guy who's talking to you right now. We've all sentenced ourselves. And when we die, we're simply paying the price we deserve to pay for our sin. It's like going to the store and, and laying down a pack of gum on the counter and telling the checkout person, I'm going to pay for that. The, the checkout person will look at you and say, oh, well, duh, or you're not work at, walking out of the store. Or if you do walk out of the store with that pack of gum, you're going to be walking out in handcuffs because that's not the way it works. You obviously are going to pay for that. So this is truly an impossible situation of having any hope. There just doesn't seem to be a way out of it. But here's the thing. God is perfect in every way. He's both perfect in justice and he's perfect in goodness and he's perfect in love. So God decided in his mercy to put together a rescue plan for us. He would be the one to pay the price of death for us since he would be perfect so that we could be forgiven and escape that sentence of the second death. See, God exists as one in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I'm not going to get into all the specifics of understanding of this right now. And even if I did, we still would never fully understand it with our finite human minds. So just trust God's word on this. So God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, came to earth and paid that price for our sin that was impossible for us to take care of ourselves. It wasn't the Jewish people who killed Jesus. It wasn't the Romans who killed Jesus. It wasn't Jesus' radical ideas that threatened the ruling party's interests that killed Jesus. Jesus went willingly to the cross and stayed on that cross, even though at any point he could have stopped all of it until he took his last breath and until he physically died, paying the price for physical death for us. Jesus even went to the place of torment to declare victory over the powers of Satan there. And in so doing, paid the price of the second death. And then three days later, Jesus made good on all of his promises that he was God and that he would defeat death and victoriously rose again from the dead. And he did all of that for us. All we have to do to be rescued from the second death, to be rescued from this absolutely impossible situation that we all deserve to go to, is to recognize who we really are in standing before God. Just be honest. Honest with yourself and honest with God's word, with what he says in it, and honest before God. Looking, recognizing who we really are in standing before God. All we have to do is recognize we simply can't be good enough to save ourselves. All we have to do is recognize that on our own, our situation is impossible and we're left helpless at the hands of our enemy. We need to recognize just how impossible and how hopeless we are on our own and that we need someone else to rescue us from that, to rescue us from the second death. Once we come to that realization, we recognize that Jesus is our only hope for that rescue. He is our only hope for that rescue. We realize that he took our place and he paid the price of death for our sin because he was perfect, because he is God. Once we come to that realization, the only thing left for us to recognize is that we have to take it for ourselves. If someone came to break you out of prison, that's not enough. You have to be the one to recognize they've come to rescue you, take their hand and run out of there. You have to accept it for yourself. You have to take it for yourself and you have to walk out. In order to accept it, you have to ask God for forgiveness of their sin that started this whole impossible situation in light of what you recognize Jesus did on your behalf. God's word tells us that when we come to that place in our lives, God promises to forgive us. He promises to welcome us into his family. And he promises to become our heavenly father. 
His word also tells us that his Holy Spirit comes and makes a home within us, sealing us, sealing us for our heavenly home and making changes in our lives to bring our lives more in line with God's standard and being pleasing to him. What we gain at that point is the eternal assurance we know we'll spend our eternity with God and enjoying all of his inheritance and all of his blessings as his child. You will never have to wonder where you will go when you die again. When you come to that realization, you will never have to look over your shoulder anymore and wonder what if. You'll never have to wonder anymore. Death, then, is no longer something to be feared, but the blessing of a doorway to eternal bliss. And not only do we get that promise and assurance for the future, but we also get God now. We get his comfort now. We get his peace now, his blessing, his conviction, his guidance, his love, his mercy, and his hope all now, too. But if you've never come to that place, if you can look back on your life and say to yourself, remember, being that honest with yourself and saying to yourself, I've never come to that place of taking that for myself and communicating that to God because of what Jesus did for me. If you've never come to, a pl to that place yet, all you have to look forward to is the second death because that's, that's what we all deserve and that's all you have to look forward to. So come to that place right now. Come to that place right now. You don't need time to think about it. I'm telling you that right now. You don't need time to think about it because you have no clue how much time you have left on this earth. And once you die, it's too late. Listen to God's call right now. Listen to that churning inside of you right now and answer it. If you've never made that decision, do this right now. Pray along with me right now. Dear God, I know that I've sinned. I'm a sinner, and that sin is rebellion against you and your perfect standard. I know I can never be good enough to be restored to you on my own. I need you to rescue me. I recognize that Jesus took my place and paid the price of death that was impossible for me to pay on my own. Please forgive me of my sin. I want to live the rest of my life for you, knowing that I now get the promise of my heavenly home waiting for me, and you now. In Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed that with me and you meant it in your heart, the impossible has now become reality for you. You've been rescued from that second death, and you have a new faith to grow in. Like with Israel, you haven't just been rescued, but barely still alive. You've been rescued and have been given overwhelming victory over your enemies. All of you who have already made the, that decision, let this be a reminder to you. You have been given through Jesus victory over all of your enemies. The enemy of your soul or Satan and his forces of darkness. You've already been given victory over every spiritual battle that you face in this life. You've already been given victory over the enemy of fear. You've already been given victory over the enemy of anxiety. You've already been given victory over the enemy of depression. You've already been given the victory over the enemy of addiction. And you have already been given victory over the enemy of death. Remember, death is just a doorway. So if you prayed that prayer, find a Jesus-believing, Jesus-loving, Bible-teaching church to keep growing in that faith. We would love for you to come become a part of our church family here. We'll be back in the same church sanctuary next Sunday that we had VBS in this past week. But mo what's most important for you is to find where the truth of the Bible is taught so you can keep growing and be supported. And let all of us, especially those of us who have made this decision even decades ago, wake up every day so extremely thankful to God that he took our absolutely impossible situation and rescued us from it himself. 
He burst into our lives and grabbed us by the hand and took us out of the, that raging ocean and brought us up out of our sin and said, here, here's my inheritance. Here's my blessing. Come be my father's child. Let us wake up every day so grateful for that and let us daily show our gratitude to him by surrendering the rest of our lives, the rest of our dreams, and all that we want up to him. Let us live our lives for him. He is a powerful God of healing and transformation. And there is absolutely no limit on what he will do in, through, and with our lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this powerful passage in the Old Testament. Story about a man named Gideon who was full of fear and had zero confidence in himself. But you took him and you used him to, to create reality out of the absolutely impossible. And the only reason that happened is because you showed up and made it happen. And Lord, we're grateful that you showed up and rescued us from our absolutely impossible situation. I pray that if there's anybody here who still has never come to that point of recognition and realization, just honesty between them and God, what their standing is before God right now, I pray that they would not take any more time because we, none of us have any clue how much more time we have on this earth. And get that right with you. Get that right with you right now so that we know where we'll be spending our eternity and know that we have you in the meantime. Lord, we thank you for these promises. It truly is a gift a gift to be given in this dark world, a world where there is no hope, a world that as we've seen, as, as this pandemic has continued and restrictions continue, a world that is not secure, a world that has no stability, a world that has no peace. Lord, we thank you that we can find all of that in you and so much more. Let us find all of that in you. Let us anchor our souls to you. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to close out our time this morning with a very, very well-known hymn. It's sung at a lot of funerals. And I think it's because the words are so simple, but they're filled with so much truth about who God is and who God is to us. And he took our absolutely impossible situation and he had unspeakable, indescribable, amazing grace and mercy upon us. So as we sing this, let us declare our praise and our thanks to God for rescuing us from that impossible situation. Amazing grace how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see. T'was grace that taught my heart to fear. Word my hope secures He 
10,000 years Bright shining as the sun Bring no last days to see God's praise than when we first began. Brothers and sisters, go with the promises of God. Go with the assurance and promise that Jesus has rescued you from your impossible situation and live in the power and faith that that gives to you. Go in peace. Amen. Next week, we'll be back in the church.